Our Honda Odyssey minivan now has 237,000 miles. And we're hoping to make it all the way through 2020, which seems more and more likely with every passing day, given the fact that we and most of us in general aren't driving all that much. In some cosmetic ways, the van shows its age, but in terms of the engine, it continues to hum along. From the beginning, when we bought it at about 60,000 miles, it had a peculiar little whine. Somehow that's related to the power steering, I'm told. So we have to keep alert to the fluid level, and we have to make sure that additional noises don't become too pronounced. So far, we've actually not had any problems with the power steering function. That, as we all know, would be a major problem. That could be dangerous, even life-threatening. Let me ask you, have you ever had the power steering malfunction in your vehicle? If you have, you know that driving becomes exponentially more difficult. In fact, for those of us who are accustomed to power steering, almost everyone, driving seems impossible. What what once was a smooth operation going from the driveway to the highway now becomes this unbearable hardship where you end up with strained muscles and unrepeatable words for the car. Power steering, I think, is one of the greatest inventions ever. It takes what is seemingly impossible and makes it almost effortless. In John's gospel today, we're going to take a look at God's gift of power steering in life. Jesus has just given his disciples their assignment, and he's given them some new factors. And what he calls them to do and to be seems impossible to them. In fact, though, unlike the analogy of a car without power steering, life without God is not just hard, it is impossible. But with the gift, Jesus' calling to them and to us becomes possible and powerful. The news is very good. Today we're continuing in our Upside Down series from Jesus' Upper Room Discourse. It's also called the Farewell Discourse, and we find it in John chapters 13 to 17. We're in our third week, and today in the second half of John 14. And in this narrative, Jesus is preparing his disciples for his coming absence. Beyond the crucifixion, beyond the resurrection, beyond the ascension even. Jesus is preparing them, not just for the chaos of the moment, but especially for life on the other side of all of this. So it makes it incredibly timely for them and for us. The disciples, as we know from recent weeks, were shaken to the core by Jesus' impending departure. They couldn't imagine life or faith without his presence around them. And yet Jesus was prepping them, equipping them for the long term in his absence. And in a few days and then in a few weeks, they would begin to grasp his teaching and why it was so essential. You know, for us, we're living in a time of, of unbelievable tumult, of change. All, all of our earthly circumstances in this season have been turned upside down. And let's be honest, there's little end in sight. Normal, whatever that may be, still seems a long way off. So we feel discombobulated and our lives feel upended. 
And yet Jesus points to himself as the one stable barrier or variable, I should say, in life. What Jesus predicted for his disciples is our reality as well as followers of Jesus. If only we understood it. If only we could live it out. Let's read that passage together and then highlight three themes that arise in Jesus' words to his disciples. And as we read this, I want you to listen closely for the repetition that comes from Jesus' mouth. His words kind of remind me of our words as younger parents with kids when a babysitter would be coming or they were going to be on their own. We had lots of things to say. We had many reminders to give. Granted, our departure speech wasn't some kind of rhetorical masterpiece, but it was heartfelt and it was blunt to the kids. There were certain themes, themes about obedience and about behavior and about responsibility and about kindness and authority and expectations They were all prominent, but so was the theme of our love and our confidence in them. Jesus speaks in similar ways to his disciples. John chapter 14, beginning in verse 15, read along with me as I read. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commands and I will ask the father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore. But you will see me, and because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my father and I too will love them and show myself to them. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, but Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Verse 23, Jesus replied, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching." These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. All this I have spoken while still with you. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and, and do not be afraid. You heard me say, I'm going away and I'm coming back to you. If you loved me, you would be glad that I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. I've told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe me. I will not say much more to you, for the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold over me, but he comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Come now, let us leave. Do you hear the repetition there? As Jesus is is headed out the door, so to speak, from his disciples, do you notice what was key for him? 
At least three things stand out here. Jesus reminds them, first of all, of his departure, and he assures them that this will be for their good. Second, Jesus promises to send them a gift, and he predicts that this gift will result in greater things. We'll spend most of our time there today. And then third, he calls them to a demonstration of love and invites them through that to a greater intimacy with him. Let's take a look at each of these reminders in John 14, 15 to the end of the chapter. First of all, Jesus says, I'm leaving. This is his departure. Jesus is leaving this world and his disciples to go to the Father, but he will return. And this is for their good. It results in our good. Jesus returns to a theme that that dominates this closed circle address that he gives to his disciples. His departure is imminent. The, The disciples don't know exactly when or how this will take place. And looking back, we do. Jesus was led shortly thereafter to the cross and crucified. Jesus was buried and he rose from the grave. Jesus left the empty tomb. And Jesus appeared to hundreds of people, including his own disciples. And then Jesus departed this earth and returned to the Father to prepare a place for his followers. Jesus was going away, and this was for their benefit, the disciples, and for our benefit. In fact, verse 28 quotes Jesus to say, If you loved me, you would be glad that this was taking place. And I sit back and say, I'm sorry, but... What in the world is Jesus talking about? His departure is a good thing? Yes, he says, and infinitely so. See, the goodness of Jesus' departure is, is true for at least three reasons. First of all, it means that the reason Jesus came is now upon us. Remember, Jesus declared I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Jesus came not just to live a perfect life, but ultimately he came as a substitutionary death. Jesus came to die in our place so that we might live, an an offer made to you and to me and to everyone in God's image. Without the death and resurrection of Jesus, no one could be saved. Without his sacrificial death, without his supernatural resurrection, you and I would have no hope. So Jesus' departure was essential for the good of those disciples and the good of everyone who's ever lived. And the offer is only effective for those who claim it through repentance of sin and trust in Jesus alone. Let me ask you, is that your story Have you received Jesus' offer to die your death and to give you his life? That's the first reason. The second reason why the departure of Jesus is good is because it returns him to where he deservedly belongs. Don Carson writes correctly, if Jesus' disciples truly loved him, they would be glad that he was returning to his father, for he's returning to the sphere where he belongs, to the glory he had with the father before the world began. This reveals the tenderness of his mercy, that Jesus is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. 
And with a resurrection body, Jesus returns to the Father and to the glorious abode that he deserves. Third, Jesus' departure sets in motion Jesus' gift. Jesus is departing from his disciples in body, but he will return in spirit. The fact that Jesus goes to his father should not cause sorrow. It actually is a joyful thought, Jesus says. The the spirit, and we'll highlight him shortly, will be with the disciples continually and will be in them. The, The spirit will be their advocate, their teacher, their empowerer, their guide. The gift is worth the absence of Jesus. This is an exchange, Jesus says, that should cause their elation, not their despair. If only they knew how good it would be. Their departure was for, his departure was for their good. In a familiar but obviously much smaller way, this kind of departure happens again and again including each August. We've experienced it as a family once, and we're going to experience it again this year. Maybe you've been there, or you can imagine it. Parents take their high school graduate off to college so that that young adult child can be welcomed into a new setting, a new environment. And colleges put on an extravagant reception to celebrate and to acclimate that new student. Many of them even put on events or sessions for the parents. But there comes a point when it's time to say goodbye. There comes a time when the parents need to embrace their child, communicate their love for their child, pray for their future, and leave. Helicopter parents tend to hang around. They're unable to detach themselves from their child, thinking that to do so would be hurtful. But the very best thing that the parents can do is leave. That's what they've prepared this young adult child for. And leaving them in this new environment with new opportunities and new companions and hopefully good authorities in their lives is the very best thing that they can do. They depart. That's what Jesus does here. That this night is Jesus' farewell speech, this upper room discourse for his disciples. Jesus is preparing his disciples for life beyond his presence, beyond the cross, beyond the resurrection, beyond his ascension. He's preparing them for a new presence in their life. And Jesus wants them to be ready for this new reality. The world may be turned upside down, but Jesus wants to ensure that they themselves aren't turned upside down. Jesus wants them to be right side up and to be prepared to follow him well. And in in order to do that, he must depart. And he tells them just that. They will see him again soon. On that day, it says, verse 20, you will realize what I mean. His departure is going to grant assurance to them and, and be a convicting witness to the world. But only time will reveal this. Before we move on to Jesus' second emphasis here in this passage, we need to highlight his reminder. Verse 27, toward the end of this chapter, Jesus returns to a theme that he began this chapter with. Namely, resist a troubled heart. Do not give in to fear. 
Verse 27 reads, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I do not give as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. You see, as we know as well, the world is powerless to give peace. There's sufficient hatred and selfishness and bitterness and malice and anxiety and fear that every attempt at peace is rapidly swamped. But Jesus offers an otherworldly peace, a shalom, that is the antidote to the fear and anxiety that the disciples feel. It's not just the power of positive self-talk from Jesus. Jesus is giving them an alternative, a reason, an antidote for their fear. Of course, the biggest reason why the disciples should choose to reject fear and anxiety and despair is made clear in a handful of verses in this passage. Jesus is sending them his spirit. And through his spirit, they will do greater things, verse 12 tells us. Look at what he says. Second point in your outline, Jesus says, I'm sending. I'm giving you a new presence. I'm sending the spirit to you, my disciples, as my presence. And he, the spirit, dwells in us. This results in greater things. Earlier in John's Gospel, chapter 7 to be exact, we hear of Jesus' first major public declaration, prediction concerning his spirit. Jesus says in John chapter 7, verse 37, on the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this, John writes, he meant the spirit whom those who had believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. John writes this with the whole story in view. He has the benefit of hindsight. He sees the life of Jesus and now he sees the the magnitude of what Jesus had said. In John 14, the disciples here have a, a private audience with Jesus. And Jesus starts to lay out the details of this promised Holy Spirit who was to come to them. And this spirit becomes the game changer for how they view Jesus' departure and how they view their own future. Look at what he says. Verse 16, Jesus explicitly promises someone else to his disciples. This would mitigate his impending absence For his disciples, not for the world. Verse 17 makes clear the world cannot accept him, referring to the Spirit. And and the end of chapter 15 goes into detail about this. But Jesus is emphatic to his disciples that while he's leaving them, he's not leaving them at all. It sounds like an oxymoron, but it's decidedly not. While he leaves, he comes. Jesus will not leave his disciples alone to face the world. They will not be orphaned. They will not be abandoned. To the contrary. Sounds fascinating. Here are the details that Jesus gives to them and to us. First, the Spirit will be the gift of the Father. The Spirit is a special gift from the Father, given by the Father on behalf of the Son as a request. The Spirit's not just a random appearance or some kind of arbitrary presence. The Father gives the Spirit to those who follow Jesus 
And as the later scriptures say, to all of them. Second, the Spirit will be an advocate. The original word here in John is the word paraclete, which is translated in a whole variety of ways in our English translations. It's a notoriously difficult word to capture in one English word. It has what grammarians call a wide semantic range. Anyone who's learned a foreign language can attest that there are certain words that just don't translate one for one. This is one of them. The NIV translation uses the term advocate. In other translations, we see helper or counselor or comforter. None of these are perfect. The idea, though, is is someone who comes alongside. In in ancient Greek, the language, it, it referred to someone who is a legal assistant, a legal advocate, someone who assists someone else in court, an advocate, a witness, a representative. This is a person who strengthens others. In the case of the disciples, the spirit who strengthens them in following Jesus, who guides them in the world, who who defends them before accusers, who represents them to the Father. Third, the spirit will be another, but like Jesus. This is key. The, The Holy Spirit doesn't come as a renegade actor. The Holy Spirit comes to represent and to highlight Jesus himself. We're we're dealing with what we call the Trinity, and it's important to understand well what Jesus means, what he intends, what the Bible teaches. Here's what it teaches in short about the Trinity. Number one, that God is three persons. And that each person, Father, Son, and Spirit, is fully God. But that there is one God. Bible teaches this. Orthodox Christianity affirms this. And in many ways, this is beyond our comprehension as human beings. There are are many analogies, some perhaps that you've heard for the Trinity, and all of them at some point break down. Nonetheless, the reality of the Trinity is true and foundational in the Scriptures. Pastor J.D. Greer says, well, each person is distinct from the other two speaking of the Trinity, but in experiencing one, you experience that one God who is them all. The Holy Spirit is is now the primary manifestation of the presence of the Trinity among us. Here's what we know regarding the Spirit in particular. The Holy Spirit is a person, not just a vague force. The Holy Spirit is fully divine. The Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is one with the Father and with the Son, and the Holy Spirit signals that God is not far off, that God has come near to be with us and for us in life. And that's the key. God is with us and in us through the person of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the Bible teaches, is equal in essence and value with Jesus perfectly coordinated with him, and yet the Spirit subordinates himself to Jesus, shining the light on Jesus so that he might receive the glory. Fourth, the Spirit will be permanent forever, it says in most translations. The Holy Spirit is not some kind of tease from God who's quickly going to be withdrawn. Decades ago, people would have said, God is not an Indian giver. That's no longer politically correct, and rightly so, but the point remains. God gives his spirit to his people permanently. We come to rely on him 
and that's by God's design. Fifth, he, the Spirit, is holy. That's made explicit by Jesus' words here. And of all the attributes of the Holy Spirit, that's the one most common to us. In fact, we use it as a name for him, and so does Jesus. The Holy Spirit demonstrates majesty and purity and the moral excellence of God. He's divine. Sixth, the Spirit is the Spirit of truth. One of the principal tasks of the Holy Spirit is to remind the disciples of Jesus' teaching, to help them grasp the significance of Jesus' teaching. The Spirit's ministry isn't to bring new revelation, but to complete, to fill out the revelation that Jesus has brought. We might say it like this, the Spirit's modus operandi is to remind us of what is already present in our mind and hearts, which ought to be the words of Jesus, and for us today, the words of the Scriptures. See, Jesus takes over the role of Jesus in our everyday lives. Michael Green writes, Jesus was God's last word to man. And the function of the Spirit was not to give some new revelation of his own, but to bear witness to Jesus, to draw out the implications of God's last word. That's true for the first disciples, and that's true for Jesus' disciples today, for you and me. The Spirit of God doesn't come up with new ideas independent from Jesus. No, his coordination with Jesus is perfect. Seventh and finally, he will remind us, he will remind the disciples of all that Jesus has said. And that was important for these first disciples. We, we have the written word of God in complete form. Most of us hold it in our very own hands. But, but the first disciples had nothing of the sort. They lived in an oral culture. They had learned from Jesus over the course of several years as he verbally spoke to them. And so this is kind of a rubber meets the road moment for them. Jesus tells them that he's leaving and they have to wonder, they have to to contemplate how in the world are we going to remember all that Jesus has said? The answer, the spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit. Jesus still had much to tell them, to inform them, to guide them, to instruct them. And the spirit of Jesus would take over that function in Jesus's absence. This is terrific news. Almost inconceivable news for the disciples as they would weeks later find out. A lot of us can bemoan the fact that we're not contemporaries of Jesus. We think maybe it would be much easier to believe and to follow him if we were. But Jesus' parting gift to them is to make his presence as real with them as if he were still with them. Again, Michael Green writes, the Spirit can do more for us than ever Jesus could have done had we been his contemporaries. He can come within us and take up residence in our very being. We are indeed not worse off, but better. Colin Smith adds to that saying, the work of the Holy Spirit is to floodlight Jesus Christ. The Father chose to be the giver. The Son chose to be the gift. And the Spirit chose to bring the gift. The Son placed himself in the service of the Father, and the Spirit placed himself in the service of the Son. Put yourselves in the shoes of the disciples at this point. Uncertain future, lots of fear, strength seemingly depleted, their livelihoods unsettled, their status unclear, 
looking forward just fueled their anxiety. Will life ever be the same? What's the new normal going to look like? We can feel the same kind of fear in our time. What's our future? What's our strength? What's our livelihood? What's our normal? To be honest, in the world in which we live, there are many reasons, humanly speaking, to be full of anxiety. But they had Jesus, and they would soon have the Holy Spirit. And if we know Jesus, we already have the Spirit of God in us. Maybe you and I need to be reawakened to that reality today. Maybe we need to be exhorted again to to let him lead and to guide and to coach and to counsel. See, when the presence of the Spirit takes up residence in us and we allow him to have his way, it changes everything about our life and our future. It reminds us that we're not alone, that God is with us. Less than two weeks ago, my computer died. It was a laptop that I had had for several years, and I really liked it. And when it died, I was discouraged and in immediate need of a replacement. Fortunately, we have a capable IT director here at our church, Brian Barlett, and, and he got me a new computer and got it all set up in record time and with a whole lot of competence. I'm so thankful for technology experts. Technology, as we all know, is great when it works. And it's exasperating when it doesn't. In the midst of the install on the new laptop I received, Brian gained control over my computer. He was at home and so was I, and I had to grant him access remotely so that he could move his arrow on my computer wherever he wanted. And it turned out that most of the functions on my computer he could initiate, but on some of the biggest, Only I could. He needed to show me to use my arrow and to click or to open or to approve or to activate. He could tell me what to do. He could show me what to do. He knew what needed to be done. He saw it all. He knew it all. He was directing it all. But in the end, I had to submit. I had to acquiesce. I had to defer to him because without my approval... It wasn't going to happen. That's typically how the Spirit of God works. He has all the power. He has all the wisdom. He can tell us and show us what to do and how to live. And in the case of God's Spirit, He can even force us to. But in most of life, we get to choose whether to follow His leading. And we're a fool not to, even though the temptation to be a fool is ever-present. The question is, will we follow? Jesus finishes at the end by saying, I'm watching. He's looking for a demonstration. Jesus calls his disciples to show their love for him. How? By obeying his commands. And the result is a spiritual intimacy. Sprinkled all throughout this passage in John chapter 14 is this unmistakable emphasis on obedience to Jesus, out of love for Jesus. If you look at the letters of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, you see this all over the place. 
The fact is that however affectionate Jesus was, however personal with his disciples and with us, Jesus is very interested in obedience. Jesus cares a lot about what his followers do and about how they live, about how they talk to each other and how they bear witness in front of unbelievers. Jesus was bigger into demonstration than to proclamation. Obedience matters to Jesus. Look here, verse 15, if you love me, keep my commands. Verse 21, whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. Verse 23, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. 24, anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. It's become fashionable in our day and age in our culture to say that what Jesus really wants is our hearts. How we live, how we speak, how we obey is, is rather secondary. And at one level, that, that is profoundly true. But at another level, it's not true at all. Because a heart allied to Jesus is a life of obedience to Jesus. And a life that's not obedient to Jesus in our actions and words and our attitudes and our priorities, it reveals a heart that doesn't really belong to him. The Apostle John is very blunt in that, in his gospel and his letters. As Leon Moore says, love to him is not a thing of words. If it is real, it is shown in deeds. Jesus had taught his disciples a long list of commands and instructions. Because to follow Jesus wasn't just a warm, fuzzy feeling. You only have to read certain places in the Gospels, like the Sermon on the Mount, to see this. Jesus spoke of hatred and purity and, and marriage and truth-telling and revenge and forgiveness and generosity, and his words are strong. They're not recommendations or suggestions, but expectations. They matter. But Jesus also summarized all of that by saying that you ought to love the Lord your God with all your being and to love your neighbor as yourself. And more specifically, he says to his disciples here, to love one another. This love was the primary ingredient of their future life together. It would highlight whose they are. Jesus knew, though, that commands alone will never result in glad obedience. It can result in conformity. It can result in compliance. But for the wondrous joy that Jesus wants... Love must be the fuel. And it's when our devoted, our persistent, our determined, our dependent love for Jesus is white hot that our glad obedience shines. Mere duty will not generate obedience to Christ. Only love for him will do that. And for that, we need the Spirit, his presence, and his power. And in order to fulfill the impossible command of Jesus to love one another, he gives us his spirit so that we could live and do that. See, Jesus doesn't just make commands. Jesus gives us the resources, the resource to do so. And the Holy Spirit would be that if we'll only let him. Verse 21, the one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Verse 23, my Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. What 
a promise. It's not all that different than when we walk out the door and the perfect babysitter arrives. We can tell our children all that they ought to do. We can tell them all the virtues of this new authority in their life. We, we can communicate the depth of our love for them. We can express our confidence in their well-being in our absence. But what will generate the kind of conduct that will please us, that will reflect our family, will be their love for us. When they believe that we have their best in mind and that we will give them everything they need to experience it. And the same is true with followers of Jesus. Is that you? Follower of Jesus, the spirit of Jesus in you is even better than Jesus with you. He said that. Why? Because the spirit of Jesus enables a deeper connection, a wider witness, a greater obedience for his followers. And that gives us incredible peace and an inexpressible joy. It's on offer to you from the spirit of Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the gift that you have given to us, and we thank you for the presence of the spirit of God in all of us and each of us who knows Jesus Christ. I pray that you would give us the courage and the confidence to let him be the steering wheel of our lives, that he would have control and that we would follow him wherever he takes us. Thank you that he shines the light on you, Jesus, and that as we follow him, as he directs our path, that we're actually bringing glory to you. Help us to experience that no matter what this life brings. Thank you for that gift. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.